Throughout the 80s, Rush explored pop songwriting through the use of synthesizers, leaving behind the days of long-form prog rock epics. This culminated on 1987's Hold Your Fire, the band's lowest performing album of the previous 10 years. Though there was never a formal discussion on the direction of the next album between band members Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart, 1989's Presto showed a clear change in sound that felt like a nod to the band's roots. This transition continued throughout the rest of Rush's career as they made their way back to sci-fi-inspired lyrics and hard-rocking riffs on 2012's Clockwork Angels. Hello and welcome to Rock and Talk with Dak, your podcast for any and all things music. Each week we're talking about something in the world of music, bands, albums, artwork, news, and reviews. Be sure to subscribe to the feed on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. You can check out Instagram for Song of the Day or head on over to Twitter to say hi. I'm Dak, your host. Let's dive into today's episode. Rush is a band I've wanted to talk about since I first started thinking about this podcast. As I mentioned in the first episode, they are my favorite band, and I could talk about them forever. There's just so many things to enjoy and discover about them beyond their best-known tunes. Despite my love for the band, however, I had a hard time figuring out how I should approach the topic. I don't want to not only tread the same ground as just about anything that can be said about them has been, but I also want to make content that I would enjoy listening to. When you think of Rush, you jump to albums like 2112, Moving Pictures, or songs like Working Man, The Spirit of Radio, or Subdivisions. But, and this may come as a surprise to some of you, those few listings took place within the first eight years of their career alone. Now, don't get me wrong, that was an amazing time for the band, but like I stated earlier, it's been explored and beaten to death. So I decided to focus this episode on the last seven albums of the band's career. As a fan, it's one of the least talked about periods, but it's still filled with amazing lyrics, strong songwriting, and fun riffs. So without further ado, let's jump in. Rush's 13th studio album, Presto, was released in November of 1989. The album marked another change in sound, though synthesizers were certainly in the mix. They returned to more guitar-driven arrangements. Just listen to the opening of the first track, Show Don't Tell. After the band set off to the countryside to begin songwriting, as they normally did, the band wasn't sure what kind of music that they'd be making. They only knew that they wanted to make a new album. Neil gets a lot more personal and worldly on the lyrics than previous albums. I think of Chain Lightning, which is about his daughter, as where Red Tide is about climate change. This change in writing is another evolution that would become a staple moving forward. The music on this album has a distinct sound, like many other records from the same year, as a matter of fact. It has elements of the 80s with a bit of a nudge looking forward, heading into a new decade. I think of The Cure's Disintegration or the B-52's Cosmic Thing. They each sound like the band that we know, but they don't really have a strong correlation, maybe save for the songwriting, on future albums. A standout song for me is The Pass. It's, it's a dark song. It's about teen suicide, which was more prevalent at the time. But what I truly relish about this song are the lyrics. I appreciate that Neil isn't patronizing. It never comes across as a cliche, oh, it'll get better, or the grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. He levels with the listeners on the reality of what's going on. And musically, it's just a very beautifully haunting song. 
The follow-up, Roll the Bones, was released two years later. The band felt invigorated after the relatively short tour for Presto and went right back into the studio. They had the same producer from Presto, Rupert Hine, which lends to the the familiar tone. And you can hear some musical ideas carried over as well, along with the synths, which are much more prevalent this time around. I don't feel that they really pushed any creative boundaries. They certainly explored some weird ideas, such as the rap on the title track, but it has a simple, straightforward, hard rock sound to it. A standout track for me, it's a bit of a deep cut. It's the last track, You Bet Your Life. You can hear some of the exploration of ideas in the chorus with this. It's not the best track Rush has done, but it's a fun, different little thing. Up next is my favorite Rush album of the 90s, 1993's Counterparts. So the producer, Peter Collins, had worked with the band as a co-producer on Power Windows and the aforementioned Hold Your Fire. He declined to return for Presto and subsequently Roll the Bones, feeling that he needed a change in career at the time. During this time away from Rush, Collins worked with the likes of Queens, Reich, and Alice Cooper. So when he was asked back, he made a perfect fit, as the band was getting back to the heavier, guitar-oriented rock sound. The conscious decision by the band to create a sonically different album, along with the producer of choice, led to a unification of music and production style. Rush was influenced by Primus and Pearl Jam, and you can definitely hear that tinge of grunge in the drums on anime and on Stick It Out. Thematically, Neil plays around with the idea of duality. I mean, just look at the album art. It's a nut and a bolt, two parts of a whole. And the standout track for me, it's another deep cut. It's Speed of Love. It's a delicate rock song that deals with the manifestation of love in our lives. Plus, it has some of my favorite drumming on the album. I will also throw in Leave That Thing Alone, the instrumental of the album, which is a fantastic staple when it's played live. On to the last 90s record for the band, Test for Echo from 1996. They took an 18-month break during which time Alex Lifeson released a solo album under the moniker Victor, and Neil Peart not only released a Buddy Rich tribute album, he also relearned how to drum. He worked with drumming legend Freddie Gruber to learn traditional grip and how to enhance his technique. Neil recorded the majority, if not all, of the album playing that way. Peter Collins returned to produce, and you can hear that clear continuation of sound from counterparts. The synthesizers are buried in the background, simply as texture. I have a hard time picking a standout track because of the difference that my two favorite songs brings to the table, so screw it. Virtuality has the heavier sound that I've come to love from the band. You can ignore the lyrics. They're a bit cheesy, though I suppose they're pertinent for the time. And then Resist. And this is the total opposite of Virtuality. Much like Speed of Love on the previous album, it's a sensitive ballad that takes inspiration from a quote in Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere. Now, soon after the Test for Echo tour concluded in 1997, Neil Peart's only daughter was involved in a car crash and subsequently passed away. Not ten months later, his wife would succumb to cancer. 
Feeling lost and hopeless, he set off on what would become a 55,000-mile trip around North and Central America. He dubbed this Travels on the Healing Road, and documented this time in his book Ghostwriter, which I highly recommend giving it a read. In 2000, he was introduced to his future wife by the band's photographer, and the two married in September of that year. In early 2001, Neil came back to the band, and the resulting effort was Vapor Trails, which came out in 2002. During this time, Geddy Lee released his solo album, My Favorite Headache, again, another album I highly recommend, while Alex worked on some side projects. Vapor Trails marked the first time in 27 years that no keyboards of any kind were used during recording, giving Lifeson free reign to create any sort of textured guitar arrangements that he wanted. He reportedly used over 50 different guitars throughout the recording process. I will say that this album is a byproduct of the Loudness Wars. For those of you who don't know what that is, it was a trend in increasing the audio levels on albums, which led to bad distortion, also known as clipping. So, on this album in particular, anything that had an acoustic guitar in it was buried underneath this crackling sound. This was later rectified, however, with a remix, which came out in 2013. But sonically, this album again continues that trend into the heavier rock sound of the band. But this time around, I don't think it was all by design. I think a lot of that heaviness comes from the band's frustrations of life at the time. A lives lost not just personally, but they had also witnessed 9-11. There was the time lost between the band members as Neil went off for a couple years to do his own thing, and really the group was just getting back on their feet as a group again. It's heavy both in terms of the music and the lyrics. My favorite track has to be How It Is. The verses are more forward and in your face while the choruses are lush and full of texture. Just take a listen. While the band released an EP in 2004 for their 30th anniversary tour called Feedback, I won't talk about it at length here except to say it's a fun covers album. They do the songs justice as simplistic as they are, but they still manage to add their own small rush twist on familiar tunes. It's a fun, easy listen. 2000 saw saw the release of Snakes and Arrows, the first modern Rush album I actually purchased. Nick Reskilinas, who had worked with the Foo Fighters and Stone Sour up to this point, produced the band's last two albums. What's interesting is that Nick is a straight-up fan of Rush, which in the music world is an interesting choice for a producer. You'd typically avoid that because you don't want to hear a fan's album. You want to hear an album that the band members make. But if you watch the behind-the-scenes making-of documentary of the album, it's really fun to see this younger producer, who so happens to be a fan, invigorating these three older guys who had been making music for well over 33 years at that point, and pushing them in different directions. And this same kind of energy would continue on to the next album. Music-wise, it's a dubbed album. And by that I mean it's overdubbed. It's normal to have, you know, two guitar tracks on a song, but depending on the song you're listening to, you can hear several. And it's not just the guitars at fault. Geddy Lee's vocals have many different uh, vocal tracks on songs as well. But I'm not saying that that makes it bad. Don't let that get you down. 
it's still a really fun album. The guys sound like they're still having fun. It's not a burden to continue making music. And this is another album where it's hard to nail down a top track, but I have to go with the main monkey business. It's the longest of the three instrumentals on the album, and it feels like a spiritual successor to their first instrumental, La Via Strangiata. And finally, Rush's last studio album, Clockwork Angels, from 2012. I talked about this album at length on a previous episode, so I won't get too deep here. If you'd like to hear my more in-depth talk on the album, check out my episode 2, Top 10 List Part 1. I'll keep it brief and say that this album is a full return to form for the band. They made a proper concept album with the sci-fi slash steampunk-inspired lyrics and recorded what I think is some of the heaviest music that they ever made, especially on the song Headlong Flight. My favorite track has to be the last song, The Garden. Again, I talked about this song on that previous episode, but it's just such a beautiful song. It encapsulates nearly 40 years of an amazing career, and it's such an elegant send-off. I hope you were able to hear the subtle changes over Rush's last seven albums, spanning 23 years. While they departed the 80s era of synthesizers on not the highest of notes, they never let that slow them down. They always made the music that they wanted, and on their own terms. Over the last of their albums, they so happened to pivot to a sound more in line with their roots. In the end, they were some of the best musicians in the industry, and they went out on top of their game, sailing into destiny. Thank you for joining me this week on Rock and Talk with Dak. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify so you never miss a beat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating on iTunes, send feedback on Twitter, or simply spread the word and tell a friend. It all helps. And as usual, this presentation is made possible by listeners like you coming in every week. So thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in next Monday. And remember, necessity is the mother of invention. See you next time.